Today's This Week in Moab begins with some audio from Utah State University on their work observing social distancing at Arches National Park. Protecting geographically explicit regions through legal or other means to conserve resources for both ecological and social values is one of the largest global actions in history. All but four countries in the world have at least one protected area, and 15% of the Earth's surface is designated as a protected area. And in Utah, we are lucky enough to have some of the highest concentrations of protected areas in the world, and people have definitely noticed. In the last five years alone, over a billion people have visited our national parks in the United States. That's more than every attendee to NFL, NBA, MLB, MLS, and NASCAR events combined. And this high amount of use takes a high amount of science-informed management. If you were to go to most national parks and ask them how many visitors are hiking on trails, most parks wouldn't be able to tell you a clear answer. So we're helping provide technical assistance and Arches National Park, where we're here today, is one of the busiest in the entire national park system. We're here helping managers understand visitor use to this windows area of the park. What we do is we use infrared trail counters to count the number of people, and we calibrate those counters with some trail cameras to make sure that we're being accurate with that. The infrared counters, for instance, if people are walking shoulder to shoulder in a group, won't be able to catch all of those people. We calibrate the times from the trail counters with the times from the cameras that we have, and we use those two things together to produce a data set that allows us to accurately assess the number of people in that area. Managers often try to provide a variety of recreational opportunities in a place, places that have opportunities for solitude, places that have opportunity for family togetherness, places that have opportunity for great photographs as well. The second thing that we're doing is we're looking at how different characteristics of places like trails influences people's ability to socially distance during the COVID-19 pandemic. So one of the things we're looking at is how trail width actually influences visitor behavior. So right here, this trail is about 15 feet. As we move up this trail, it goes to about 8 feet. And then up at the very top there, it drops down to even smaller than that. So we want to see how people are able to keep that 6 foot distance between each other and their groups. The other things we're looking at are group size and the density of visitors, the number of people using the trail at that time, and how that influences people's ability to socially distance. And with collaboration from faculty down at the USU Moab campus, we're also looking into the future. If the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us anything about visitor use in parks and protected areas, it's that access to places for outdoor recreation, like our national parks, provide an essential service for human health and well-being. We are looking to see how these results might generalize to other parks and protected areas so managers can better understand how to create socially distanced, safe opportunities for visitors. If you have questions about this project or want to know more information, please feel free to contact either myself, Zach Miller, or Wayne Fryman. As a matter of fact, Wayne is here by magic of Zoom. Wayne, Wayne, are you? Pick, am I picking you up here? Yep, I'm here. For those that um, have not seen this video, I had I, Molly just quickly gave me that link. The information that was delivered for auditory needs was fantastic, but I have to tell you, the video was just stunning. So thanks for all that work to put that together, and um, you're here to talk about what you're doing. It's very interesting. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Um, why don't you introduce yourself to the... Oh, I lost you there. I'll get you back. Why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners, who you are and what you do? 
Uh, my name is Wayne Freimond. I'm a professor here at USU Moab, and I teach in the Recreation Resource Management Program. Uh, we moved here, my wife and I, Tammy, moved here at the end of March in 2020. So right while Moab was shut down and uh, experiencing kind of the worst of the, the pandemic effects. Um, we came here from Clemson, South Carolina, where I was the chair of the Recreation, Parks, and Tourism program there. And before that, I was at the University of Montana in Missoula for about 23 years. And all of that time studying national parks and visitor behavior within parks. So how does it feel to be in Moab now? Oh, I love Moab. Um, one of the earlier studies that I was involved in was at Arches National Park in about 1991. And uh, that was a study about crowding and the amount of encounters people were having. Uh, so things have changed a lot since then. Well, that's a nice way to lead in. I mean, you were back here in 1991. And back in those days, the visitation <clears throat> was... Um... A little bit less than we're experiencing, say, let's, well, let's even look into this year, 2021, which is what, 30 years from that first time. Take us, you know, from then to now, if you don't mind. Well, the, when I was here at Arches in the early 90s, the park had experienced a, a threefold increase in visitation from 1980 to 1990. So they'd gone from like 250,000 visits a year to 750,000. And in just this really rapid amount of time, there was um, a lot of impacts that were happening, um, particularly to the kind of cryptobiotic soils. The staffing hadn't really changed, budgets hadn't really changed, but uh, we had a lot more people to manage. And so they were um, eager to figure out ways to better manage the flows of visitation at the time. And so the Park Service had created a program called the Visitor Experience and Resource Protection Program, and they were looking for a park to pilot that project um, that would help, you know, think through different management strategies for visitors. And Arches rose their hand and said, yes, we would like to work on that. So I was with a team of people from the University of Minnesota and the University of Vermont at the time uh, that worked with park planners at the Denver Service Center. And um, it, was, it was great. So now we have something like, well, in 2019, we had a little over 1.6 million visitors uh, to the park. And, and even now in 2020, we had over 1.2 million yeah, it was a stunning number considering the park was closed pretty much from about a year ago, about <clears> now, really until late through until Memorial Day last year, which yeah. was a ma you know a major number of visitor period of the park, which was a good thing you know at the time, you know I think it stopped people from coming here, <laughs> which was very at the time very welcomed not to be here. Yeah, February was off to the races with Arches. It was above 2019's um, visitation levels, but then March, April, and May, there was hardly anybody. Um, and then over the summer, it kind of, the visitation started to catch up with typical, you know, monthly visitation. But by October, it had, you know, surpassed. So October, November, December were far higher this year than in 2019. I don't know. I mean, I know these numbers don't necessarily indicate. Um, I mean, I know they indicate visitors, but the one big portion of visitation that was not in the park last year were coaches, of course. 
So that, you know, I, I'm just looking at the two numbers that were presented here. That would be a good indication of maybe that was the loss in those parties. I mean, obviously, for better, for better or for worse, they're, you know, they bring 40 people into the park in one vehicle, which in some, by some aspects is probably something the park encourages in a way, right? I mean, they're shuttling what would be, could be 40 different cars in one nice luxury coach. How do you feel about okay. that kind of visitation and who you pick and, you know, how do you deal with that, the sheer numbers? Yeah, it's, it's really, um, always about trade-offs, you know, the, uh, fewer cars that would come as coaches is a, is a benefit, but then you might have 40 people hitting the trailhead at the same time and have these large pulses and surges of visitation that, that happen in different parts of the park. So if you just think about the road, and not how it's connected to the trails. You just move whatever issues you have around within the system. And so you have to think about all of that kind of simultaneously uh, to come up with a kind of a working you know, plan. So we, we've seen parks that use a shuttle system, for example, and that does wonders for congestion on the roads and parking lots and that kind of thing. But uh, it also can just, if there's enough latent demand, you can just end up with more visitors piling in and, and you still have all the cars that you would have had, you know, so it all has to get thought through. And there's a lot of, I mean, obviously arches, they have, they have no real means to control the volume of visitors per se, do they? I mean, the way the current system is, I mean, they don't really have control mechanisms to prevent cars from just coming into arches, which has been mentioned in the past by various different groups, including the Park Service themselves, of moving towards a reservation system at t certain times of the year. Um, thoughts on that? I mean, you obviously monitor the, the volume and the, the, the usage, so what, what are your thoughts on that process occurring? I think that at some point, um, you, you almost have to think about it like, do you want it to be a fast food restaurant or do you want it to be a a high-end restaurant and uh, what what kind of service do you want to provide and at a, at a certain point you can move unlimited numbers of people through there but the quality of the experience that the people have is going to change and we've already seen in campgrounds around the country reservation systems are working pretty well I mean they they have issues with you know, serving best people that can plan way ahead and can, can make a reservation. But, you know, you have a dependable experience. There's only a certain number of, of people uh, that are going to be there. Um, there's a lot of predictability in the system for the visitors, and, and they really appreciate that kind of stuff. The way it has been functioning, and I don't know how often this happens at Arches, but in a lot of parks, especially in the last year, they would get full and basically have to put a sign out in front of the park. Like when Molly and I were there um, earlier this summer talking about this study and there was a park, please come back in three hours. And so in effect, there's a kind of a limit on the system when there's just nowhere to park and there's not enough um, staffing to make sure everybody's going to be safe and, you know, that sort of stuff. So, you know, the system will find some, regulatory point you know and and hopefully it's not driven by people are just so disgusted with the experience that they're going to 
go somewhere else. Well, you mentioned, I think, your critical you know, analogy and what, how you described between fast food and a high-quality restaurant. I would firmly say that the Park Service, National Park Service, wants to give the most high-quality experience to the American visitors or, or the visitors to their parks across the board. And I, would, you know, I hear their arguments saying they don't have the resources available to deal with the volume of visitors there, particularly in Arches and some of the, I would call them the bucket list parks maybe. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I, I always consider Arches as one of these parks that people coming here it's a very anticipated, you know, it's not a random thing. Oh, let's just drop into Arches. No, no, no. I mean, it's quite the opposite. It's often a once-in-a-lifetime trip for so many visitors. And, you know, I mean, they don't want to be turned away at the door, too, either. So, you know, it's a very, the park's in a very difficult situation, I would say. I agree with you. It's it's almost intractable. And, and, you know, we have two things working at the same time. One is that these are gems. These are the places that our country has decided are of national importance. You know, they, they're really spectacular places. And um, so we want to protect that. But at the same time, our national parks are one of our most democratic kind of things. You know, it's, it's the people's property. And so it's very difficult to tell folks they can't go to their park, you know, when, when they do finally get that opportunity to do it. So we're, we have to find some balance for all of this. But one way or another, if use continues to escalate <clears throat> the way it has, we're gonna, we're gonna have to come up with some you know, system to, to work it out. And, and maybe that is just redistributing use through seasons or uh, different times of the day or whatever. You know, I don't think that the reservations have to necessarily mean you can't get in. It might mean you have to wait a few hours, but you can at least plan on waiting a few hours instead of getting to the gate and then finding out you can't get in. And then you got to decide, well, what are we going to do today? And, you know, maybe we'll run up to Dead Horse Point or try to go to Canyonlands or something like that. But, you know, that takes hours to get back and forth between those things. So it really kind of can derail a person's day. And I would, I would have to say that our community is guilty for creating the ability for archers to be so busy in the first place. I mean, it's a hard thing to kind of admit to yourself as a community, but archers wouldn't be quite as busy if the community that the gateway community, which is what Moab is, didn't just have quite so many offerings for overnight visitors and, you know, in the, in all sorts of forms from camping all the way up to luxury hotels. So, you know, it's, and that's an interesting, you know, it's a parallel force happening. I mean, you've got, you know, this year alone, I think, seen a thousand hotel rooms be added to the list. So that means there's a thousand more visitors who may or may not want to get into Arches, but there's a good chance they will, you know what I mean? Especially first time visitors. Yeah, maybe two or three thousand, you know. So, sure. you know, in a busy day that's already getting six thousand, you know, folks into the park, you know, or, yeah, so uh, popularity, you know, I guess it's a good problem to have, you know, um, in a lot of ways, but um, it does create a lot of challenges. Let's get to the kind of the crux of this discussion this afternoon. You mentioned it earlier that you were in the park with Molly last summer. That, tell me about, can you tell the listeners about some of the study results and how they monitored the trails, how your group monitor, actually did the trail <clears throat> monitoring? Sure. So, as I mentioned, you know, I've 
had this relationship with arches for quite a while over the concept of crowding actually you know that there's there's a point where um just the sheer congestion or number of people you know interferes with the goals people have there and and that happens all over the country i mean arches is one of many many very busy parks uh where people literally can't find a place to park and and that kind of stuff so when um as a kind of an adaptive coping mechanism to the pandemic, we really started promoting get outside, get to the parks, you know, that that's a safe place to go. Having watched visitor behavior for quite a while and realizing that we actually design these parks to funnel people into specific places, right? Um, I was just a little skeptical about whether or not it was as safe as we were just assuming it was. It, that to me, it was an untested kind of question. And when you think about uh, a park like Arches, it's whatever, 75,000 acres, but I would imagine three to 5% of the park absorbs almost all of the visitation that's coming in there. I mean, most of that landscape. So, so we end up with these actually pretty you know, urbane kinds of settings sometimes in our national parks, go to Yosemite. I mean, it's like, you know, being in a city. So, so we wanted to look at whether um, people were really able to socially distance in the park. And I, I approached um, the folks at the park and said, I think, you know, this would be a worthwhile thing to look at. We could do it relatively efficiently. Um, and with very little impact to the visitors or anything like that. So uh, we designed a, a methodology to take motion sensor cameras um, and uh, put them up in, in the study that we just published was at the visitor center, at the foyer of the visitor center. And we put signs up to let people know this is, this is happening. And we dithered the, the scene so that you could never pick out an individual person you couldn't you know you could you know you could tell if they had a backpack on or something like that but you you couldn't you know read the letters on their sweater you know you couldn't tell if it was you know utah or utah state on their um, on their sweatshirt right so um that gave us the ability to kind of watch the, an area over time without us being there interfering with it and then to come back and very systematically look at the videos that we got and look at the number of groups that were there, um, how big those groups were, whether people were wearing masks, and whether or not they had intergroup kind of interactions. So what we um, assumed is that if you're with your own family in a group, that's fine. You can interact, you know, within six feet all you want. But the idea is can, can groups physically kind of stay apart from one another? Or do they want to, do they try to? Um, and so that's what we did. And we just put it up for a couple of days in uh, last July and watched about 700 different groups over the course of a couple of mornings. And then uh, Madison Vega, a wonderful undergraduate student at Utah State, uh, worked with the team of us to develop a, a protocol for analyzing these videos. And we went through them and classified everything that we saw. Um, can you reveal some of those results to us? What, what, uh, what, yeah. what, what, did, what, what did the results reveal to you? I should ask you that question, perhaps. 
Well, first of all, um, 68% of the people got in and out of that foyer without any interactions with another group. So, so that, you know, given my skepticism, that was a, a welcome surprise, you know, that, that seemed more than I expected. Um, and a big part of that was that people were coming up as groups, small groups, like one person in a group, uh, like 50% of the people were in a group of one. Uh, which is atypical for arches. In 2017, there was a study there and only 7% of the visitation was in a group of one. Wow. So, wow. So, so we don't know exactly why. Um, either we have an awful lot of singles kind of coming to the parks during pandemics or uh, they were consciously having one person come out of the car and the others were staying in there. So you could see some of this kind of coping behavior to minimize interactions with other people. Okay. So, so that was, that was great. And it really did influence the overall percentage of people that were able to get in and out without any interactions. Once you started adding people to the group, um, so larger group sizes or more groups at one time, uh, the probabilities of running into somebody um, or having an encounter increased. Um, so let me see if I get my kind of number. So if you were in a group of two and there were four groups there, you'd have a 20% chance of encountering another group. Okay? And, you know, I guess this is really about people risk assessment, you know, and uh, if uh, there were eight groups there and they were groups of two, you'd have about a 40% chance. So, and, and on average, we had six groups at a time that were in there, okay? And sometimes there were 11 groups, sometimes there was only one person there, one group. Um, when we had, uh, if you had four groups of five, that would go up to about 30%. And if you had four groups of eight, it would be about a 50% probability that you'd be encountering another group. Okay. So, so it's not um, a situation where you're not taking any risk to go into these parks. Um, about 60% of the visitors had masks on, and this was in July. So it was before there was any mandate to have masks on. It was recommended at the time. So um, people were demonstrating that, you know, they were taking precautions and that in areas like the visitor center foyer, which is fairly wide and you have some room to move around, they were avoiding each other and, and taking kind of behavioral measures to do that. So that was all um, pretty good. I mean, you think in terms of um, comforting kinds of results. So there's certainly some interactions that are happening, but when you put it into the context that you're outside that 60% of the people had masks on, that the interactions themselves are relatively fleeting in time. It's not like you're sitting and talking for 15 minutes or a half an hour. Um, I felt a lot better after seeing the results that at least in those parts of the park where people have some opportunity to move around, they're, they're able to do it. And we've got a few more minutes left. What about the trailheads? You did some monitoring there too, is that correct? Or just at the visitor center? Uh, yeah, we did We did try um, monitoring some trails, um, but we ran into lots of problems. Our, um, um, <laughs> our cameras um, couldn't work at over 130 degree temperatures. 
and uh, got you'd, fried. Be <laughs> you'd be amazed at in July how often uh, it, it's 130 degrees. So, so we didn't get as good of data. It wasn't as reliable there. Um, and, and it was just much more difficult with this methodology to, to pick up the encounters that were happening. So anecdotally, um, I've, I've spent a lot of time just watching people. We were up there last week, my wife and I spending some time and um, some of these trails are five feet wide. I mean, it, it's functionally impossible to not have an encounter if you don't walk off the trail and let somebody sure. by. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's definitely encounters that are happening on the trail systems. And there are also people that are stepping off the trails that are, you know, avoiding the encounters. And I've seen that many times. That leads to another kind of an issue with, you know, trail uh, erosion and, and cross busting and that sort of thing. So, uh, like I said, in the places where people have the ability to separate themselves, they're, they're doing a better job than I expected. Well, it's interesting all this information coming to the play because I'm sure you're aware the community is making a pretty significant shift in its commitment to, you know, really educating the visitors once they're here. And, of course, all this information helps in the process of, you know, creating safe processes in, you know, times of pandemic, for example. I mean, these are very, you know, extenuating circumstances right now, but it's fascinating to see the information and watch human behavior, I guess, in a way. Yeah, you know, sometimes the, the extremes give us a lens that we wouldn't normally be able to see kind of acute uh, behaviors through. And, you know, so much of this happens so quickly with so little data to support the decision making. And, you know, I, I worried about park rangers that had to be out and about and are considered essential and are encountering lots of people. Um, so, you know, there, there's just a lot of different angles that you can think about this from. And, and I hope that we are gonna be able to dissect it and look back and, and learn a lot of lessons. Um, one thing I think you'll see, I mean, you mentioned you came here last spring. I would almost be you know, willing to guarantee that this spring will be very different experience for you as a resident than last spring was. Last spring was very, you know, almost apocalyptic. It's just very strange never to have any visitors here during the peak spring season. So um, be prepared, as they say, you know, for the um, arrivals of these, you know, nature-loving visitors. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I know it's a it's a busy town and, and lots of folks are are here. I've um, I've worked around national parks for a long time and, and in gateway communities and I really like it. I mean I I like visitation, I like tourism, I like I like watching people have a good time. I like these kinds of studies where you know you, you can go talk to people and they're almost always in a good mood. You know, they're mm -hmm. they, you know, it, to us, it's our day-to-day -day job and we're working to them. This is that two weeks of the year that you really get to get out there. Well, I can also just, as we wrap up here, Wayne, I just want to tell you how excited we are as a community about USU's stamping its presence in our community. I mean, I say that quite literally because I now can see the walls of the new campus, you know, up on the hillside uh, there. It's a very exciting time for, you know, USU and Moab. So we're yeah, excited to have you part time. of the team. Yeah, thank you very much. It's an exciting time to be here. I'm, I'm thrilled. All so. right. Wayne, thank you so much for your time and giving us information. Stay in touch. I mean, I'm sure Molly will stay in touch with you too and on your work that you do here.
And um, we're going to zoom right into my next guest. As you can see on the screen there, there's no rest for the wicked, is there? <laughs> no, I, I enjoyed it very much. All day. right, Wayne Freeman from USU. Some fascinating information on people's behavior in the park monitoring and um, I would imagine there'll be quite a few visitors entering the National Park in the next few weeks or so. All right, um, joining me live in the studio via this magic, magic of Zoom, I have Lonnie Campbell, who is the newly appointed president of the chamber, correct? Correct. Please correct me if I get anything wrong here. And Lacey Shumway, who has been kind of a long-term executive director. You've been, how long have you been the executive director, Lacey? We'll start with you. Hi. Um, it'll be three years in May. So I don't know what, you know, is, is deemed long-term, but, but yeah, three years. Feels kind of long. <laughs> well, congratulations on that. Um, Lacey, why don't you um, say hello to the listeners first? We'll let ladies go first. It is International Women's Day today, so it seems just right that we um, honor that and let you introduce yourself to the listeners. Just a little bit about yourself um, and what you do in your role in the chamber, who you are. So, my husband and I moved to Moab about six years ago. Um, we're originally both from Blanding, so we're definitely southeastern Utah um, natives um, and, you know, grew up knowing Moab and, you know, driving through and visiting. Um, we moved here with our family. Uh, my husband's been in kind of the construction world, which is what brought us here. And I've been with the chamber since 2018, uh, serving as the director. And um, I mean, basically just running the operations of, of the deal. The chamber is made up of board members who are all volunteers um, and interested in the business world. And, and I am the staff that, that runs the operations. And we also have Kelly Packard is our, is my assistant. And we have Lana um, Thomas who does our billing. So chamber is growing for sure. We're going to get to that too. And, and Lonnie, when you introduce the, um, thanks for that, Lacey and Lonnie, leave it to you to, You've got a, a pretty decent history in this town, from my understanding. Why yeah, you tell, I do. Why you tell I, the uh, listeners instead of me. <laughs> so I currently, I currently, like you said, I'm the president. Just got appointed by Brendan Cameron, who was our previous president. Uh, I do. I'm third, third generation Moabite. So moved away for a little stint in Salt Lake. Moved back here. I currently, I work with Zions Bank as a business banker, which is a good fit for the Chamber of Commerce. So I have that, that is my day-to-day -day duties. But yeah, just, this will be my third, going on my third year now with the Chamber and it's fun. It's one of those that when I first got asked if I would put an application in, I didn't really know what the Chamber did didn't know much about the chamber, but it seemed like it was a good group to join. And I don't regret it one bit. Prior to banking, you were involved in the film industry of sorts. Is that correct? Would that be? Um... Yep. Uh, family, family's owned a film production business here. My dad started doing films in and around the area in 82, I believe is when he started. So long history of film work, and I, I, I was involved with it up until about 2012 or 13, and I kind of got away from it. So, 
moved into banking. Everybody's favorite business. You know how bankers go. You know what they say about bankers. Exactly. We need you. <laughs> We'd always love you, but we need you. <laughs> All right. Um, let's go to the chamber and feel either of you feel free to just, you know, add and, you know, jump in on help each other out. If I was, I mean, most people have a basic understanding what the Chamber of Commerce's are, but from a Moab perspective, just tell us, tell me, I'm, I'm an alien, okay? Tell me about the Moab Chamber of Commerce. What is it? Lonnie, do you want me to take that or you want to? Yeah, you can run with that one. You'll be next. Lacey, tougher questions. Lacey's the brains of the operation here. <laughs> so basically the Chamber of Commerce um, is there to represent all businesses within the community. Um, I'm going to get a little bit technical, and um, our our mission statement is to engage, empower, and educate businesses for greater success. And we have goals within the chamber that um, help us to do those things. But basically, we just represent and serve businesses um, and professionals seeking to grow the local economy and improve business climate. Um, as you can imagine, that can be somewhat challenging. In Moab, um, we've we've seen a lot of growth really fast, and we're wanting to help be a part of solutions to do this responsibly, um, and then also still foster that, you know, that business climate and and growth as well. And so we do that. You know, our our main um, duty right now, and and especially this past year with mm. with the pandemic, has been through um, information. We have. We have tried really hard to stay up on all of the resources that are out there for businesses, um, all of the changes for a while there, it was changing daily, you know, what, what businesses could do and what they could apply for and um, the regulations and all of that. And Lonnie has kind of another um, perspective on that from the, from the banking world as well. But, but information, keeping businesses informed on what is going on and what resources they have has been a major value that the chamber has offered businesses this year in particular. Let's, let's ask some nuts and bolts questions about the chamber because I did ask about these and I was kind of taking us back. You have quite a few members. Um, why don't you tell the listeners how many members are actually in the chamber of commerce? Yeah. So we run about an average of 275 members. Um, and that is the way that we do it is um, everybody renews, renews, on anniversary month. So of course that number um, rises, it ebbs and flows a little bit. Um, just some months we have, you know, a ton of people who are renewing and some not as many, um, but really the average is about 275. Um, and really of all kinds of businesses. I mean, everything from, I mean, we've got some, some retail, we've got contractors, we've got lots of financial institutions, we've got, um, you know, restaurants and hotels and just a little bit of everything, really. Can you think of any more? Go ahead, Lonnie, go ahead. We don't have KZMU, though, so we got to work on that one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm just a, uh, <laughs> I'm a worker here. They were a member. We're going to talk a little bit about to that, actually, nonprofits and their work with um, for-profits. I was going to ask you, Lacey or Lonnie, are there any businesses that perhaps maybe Moabites don't even realize it, that exist in Moab? Because I know there's a lot of talks about economic diversification and how we need to do more than tourism, but there are a number of the members, I understand, that you know operate kind of outside of this realm of tourism quite successfully. You want to mention a few of those? Uh, you're putting me on the spot a little bit here. I'm trying to think of, of you know who people may not know about. We do actually have 
since you're mentioning nonprofits, we do actually have quite a few nonprofits um, who are members and we're building those relationships as well. Um, and some of those are really great helps to businesses. We have a few, um, I would like marketing, I would say marketing companies or something that maybe our businesses aren't aware of that they have those services here. Um, let's, let me I'll help you out. How about Strata Solar? That's a pretty big... Um... A little bit too, to see. <laughs> Strata Solar, I mean, they're a utility-sized solar yeah. company and they happen to have offices here in Moab? Lots of telecommunications. We have Provelocity. Um, we do have quite a few businesses from Grand Junction who who opt to be members of the chamber. Um, I think there's like a long-term care facility who, who joined just recently um, during the pandemic. Um, and, and they're trying to grow their business into Moab. So I heard about the Moab Bit Company. Is that, a, are they a chamber member? The, have, have, the Moab Bit Sorry, what did Lonnie's you say? Lonnie's not bit, as in. No, I don't. I don't believe. I don't believe Moab Bit is a okay. chamber. They are a good example, though. I mean, I can go out and say, there's a lot. You know, everyone's talked about diversifying into little micro manufacturing type of companies. Clients that I've dealt with through my work, I, I can't speak. I don't think that they are chamber members, but. You know, we have Moab Bit, who they do drilling bits all over the country, and they're, they're manufactured right here in town. You have Eddie Line Welding that builds pretty high-end river raft or river boats, I suppose is what you'd call them. So I think there's, there's proof that kind of gets overlooked in Moab that micro-manufacturing can work on a small scale here, so... I'm thinking the synergy Just, companies, you know, even, you know, they're not even so small anymore. They're actually pretty. As, yeah. They're, they're a pretty successful business. I mean, all of these are pretty successful businesses in their own world. So. But it's a reminder maybe to the listeners that Moab's a lot more diverse than maybe people give it credit for, you know, I mean, I know there, there's a definite um, leaning towards hospitality and tourism for, I would say obvious reasons. It's um, I think it may have something to do with the public lands that surround us that are so easily accessible for so many different activities, etc. So we know that's a big part of what's made Moab Moab today, right? And you and the chamber is kind of the linking mechanism between all these different entities into one unified chamber, right? Yeah, it's amazing too how often we can. We can put businesses in touch with one another that doesn't seem like a good fit, but a lot of times there's a lot of valuable information that they can share amongst themselves in between their two different industries. So that's really where we, I would say, we kind of thrive in the fact that we understand a lot of the businesses in town. And obviously the, the nature of connecting these businesses and that what you would normally do prior to, um, what should we say, about a year ago? <laughs> it's almost exactly a year, right, that everything went into a different mode. Um, so it's been a very different year, Lacey, for you, the board. I mean, obviously things have changed. You can't have lunches like you had every month with membership. Um, you couldn't do your annual banquet, which is a major fundraiser for you. And so, I mean, how, I mean, as a chamber, how have you survived this year of COVID? So that's exactly right. We usually have, we do have quite a bit of ne um, networking and events going on and it's, it's been rough. 
we so the chamber is solely funded um, through membership dues and fundraising and because the chamber has run pretty well for for so many years um we we were you know i was blessed to have predecessors who kept rainy day funds and whatnot and and so it's been you know it's been okay for sure but um and we've we've held a few we had an online auction and we have done a couple of chamber chats which aren't necessarily fundraisers but just ways to communicate um with some of our our local government and and the health department and whatnot but it's it's been a different world for sure um during the during the shutdown at least the chamber stopped invoicing um we didn't you know we just didn't feel right about invoicing and charging for chamber membership for businesses that couldn't that couldn't open their doors for sure and so um i felt really lucky that we were able to do that and still keep our doors open um, but definitely it leads, it leaves for some, some catching up to do this year and in years to come. Were you able to generate new members during a crazy year like we've never seen before? Yes, actually. Um, I would say that our, you know, our membership growth was, was pretty average, um, to other years, which is surprising considering how many businesses were shut down and, and struggling at the time. Um, I think, so something else that we did was normally our our email, our database and all of that information is through chamber membership. And we opened that up to any businesses wanting to know what resources they had. And we, we added some emails on there for the, you know, just temporarily any, any businesses that needed help we wanted to help them. And so from that, I think businesses were able to see the value of the chamber and they eventually ended up um, signing on when things started opening back up. And yeah, the chamber was still able to, to function, which was just kind of amazing. How do you um, foresee 2021 going? I mean, obviously nothing right now, but do you foresee some sense of normalcy returning to chamber functions in the foreseeable future? Oh, I really hope so. <laughs> I know you have a golf tournament. Is that correct? Is that something, yes, at least that's a sign, right? Yep. It's a good sign. Our first, our first fundraising event since COVID since last year, um, we've got our, our golf tournament is on April 16th. Um, and yeah, we're, we're excited to get out in the sunshine and just, it's play some golf from that tournament we the money raised from that tournament we um we were able to provide scholarships for two seniors in the high school um who have business related interests and that is some a really amazing thing we get to do every year it's something we did last year even without even without the tournament because um you know we really want to help these kids get into the business world and see that as a huge benefit to our community as well well, it's interesting you mentioned it because, I mean, as a, as a chamber, you operate very much as a nonprofit too, aren't you? I mean, you're actually officially a nonprofit organization, which a lot of people don't realize, you know, I mean, you're the best example of why nonprofits should be members of the chamber because by your essence, you're a nonprofit organization, right? We are. We're a, we're a 501c6, okay. which basically just, um, you know, the, the only difference is that we get our membership from due, or our, our money from membership dues. Um, and we are not sales tax exempt, <laughs> but we are, I think, uh, income tax exempt. So I think that's the only difference. 
Okay. Um, so obviously the more members you have, the better it is for you. Just FYI, and I, um, I don't mean to cause any problems with anybody else, but um, you've heard of Park City, Utah? No, yes. I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, their chamber, I, I don't know if you know this, Lacey and Lonnie, but their chamber receives direct funding from some of the TRTs that Park City corrects. It's been a bit of an issue because um, the amount... I this is a few maybe a couple of years ago was in excess of seven million dollars. So it's not. I mean, I would wonder what you would do with seven million dollars coming into the Chamber of Commerce and you're a nonprofit. You you know you'd be crazy. Right. So it's just you know it's interesting how I know there's changes of foot you know as we speak um, happening in the state legislature and that there's you know some levers have been loosened to allow some funding to be utilized towards economic diversification. So it seems very fitting in a sense that the chamber is a very much a focal point of that shift in focus in a way because you represent the forces of industry, right? I mean, you represent right. all the businesses of town. So that's actually a very, you know, I think a very promising thing perhaps maybe for you as a chamber too. I don't know how it might end up, but it would seem a good use of public funding. Those thoughts have crossed my mind as well, Howard, for sure. <laughs> Lonnie's listening with intent, being the banker that he is, I know. So, Lonnie, tell me a bit about the board. You know, that the board that you've just taken charge of, you've got some new members. Do you want to, do you want to feature any of, your, of, of the, your board members to test you to see if you even know who your board is? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, Tough question, Lonnie. I'm sorry. I'm not sure if you were there when I mentioned it at our retreat, but... I honestly feel that our chamber board is probably the most diverse board in town. Uh, we have representative or representation, I suppose, from just about, I can't say every industry, but we just brought on Clint York with Lisbon Valley Mining Company. So we have someone from the mining exploration. We've got... We also just brought on Ashley Kornblot, who is Western Spirit Cyclery. Uh, we have myself in the financial sector. We have Shaley Bryant, who is my vice president in from Ed, or Edward Jones. Um, we have Matt Neeson, who kind of wears a lot of different hats. He's got nightly accommodations that he does. He's big into the solar industry. We have... Taryn Powell, who is an Emory Telecom marketing person. So she is a representative on the board. Judy Copeland works for a restaurant, Zach's Restaurant in town. We really do have a very diverse board. I mean, I don't know that we could build a more diverse board. So, Who are your adjuncts from the county and city? We've, we just brought on Jacques as our county commissioner liaison who who's done a great job so far we've got karen newton guzman with our city council and both of those two really do keep us in the loop on a lot of the things going on so that's been really helpful I also I would like to commend the chamber because you also have the ear of one of our senators at your board meetings um, of late, which is always good to have our federal officials engaging with local groups, and that's um, Justin Anthony, right? Isn't he the he's the business rep for Senator Mike Lee? Oh, and I can't. I also 
Cantley that I spoke earlier a little bit about it, but Brendan Cameron is who was the previous president is still staying on the board, which is, I mean, he, he's really between he and Lacey, he's, or those two are the reasons the chamber has grown. Like it has, I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. And for those that didn't know, um, Brendan is the expert mountain biker, is he not? Yeah. That's why he's listening. I know he's probably not. He had a, for those that don't know, he had a pretty significant accident this, not so long ago, really. I mean, right around Christmas, wasn't it? And he's right. still smiling, you know? I mean, that's, uh, he's one of the most, he is one of the most remarkable individuals in our community. And Lacey, as are you, I mean, you have um, quietly gone around, you know, in one of the most challenging years that this community has ever seen and just been a, a calm person throughout it. I mean, I know Molly and yourself have had quite a lot of interactions through KZM New News, keeping the community informed of all, all the things that were happening last year. But you've really been a smooth director during this very challenged year, so thanks for all your studyship. And you're also on the Economic Diversification Committee, which is a big thing, I think, for the Chamber, I would say, too. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm grateful for that opportunity, for sure, and excited to, you know, explore some of those, those avenues. Um, we did talk a little bit earlier about nonprofits and the for-profits and how they all work together in the chamber. And I guess as a representative of, of a nonprofit, I see the value of nonprofits being chamber members because when it comes to things like fundraising, for example, which is a very necessary part of being a nonprofit, um, that if you're members of the chamber, you have you know basically all the businesses in town that might be potential underwriters to your cause and I know there's a lot of back and forth in this town and Moab actually one of the reasons I think many of us enjoy living here so much is that really good fluid relationship between the business sector and the nonprofit sector in general that I think both support each other so what I'm saying is putting a word out there for all the nonprofits to become chamber members I'm sure you Absolutely. have a and I actually want to put in a plug too for Megan Megan Miller she's with Wabi Sabi and she uh, about two years ago, we decided that we really wanted to, you know, be more involved and get a better grasp on the nonprofit world here in Moab. And we asked her to be our nonprofit committee chair. Um, we just kind of developed this committee and, and talked to her. And she has been she has been awesome in um, helping us come up with ideas and communicating um, between the nonprofit and business world. And so that's been you know, that's something that we can hope, we hope we can continue to grow and foster those relationships um, through her and that committee as well. You're doing a lot of work. I mean, I think often undervalued by the community in general that, you know, the, the, the chamber members, I mean, they often are hardworking business owners in town, too, and not, often not mm -hmm. available to, you know, be present at a lot of meetings. You hear a lot from the officials saying, well, we never hear from the businesses. And I think, you know, the chamber has a role in that, but I mean, it's, I think it's one more tool in the, in the toolkit to kind of have a, a better dialogue between all the various entities that, you know, operate in our valley because we have very unique circumstances here. You know, there aren't many counties quite like Grand and there certainly are not many towns like Moab. Absolutely. And our, like, just like our board and like our community and like everything else, our, our membership is really diverse. And so it's, um, 
yeah, I would just encourage all businesses to reach out to the chamber and, and talk to us, you know, about what your concerns are, what your challenges are. Um, one thing that I've learned in the past three years is that there's, it's all over the board, even within the business realm, right? Um, those challenges are not all the same and not everybody has the same perspectives. And I've said it before and I'll just, I'm just going to keep saying it, but you know, the very best solutions are going to come from well-rounded conversations. And if we could get people to just reach out, if maybe, you know, maybe they feel intimidated or don't have the time or whatnot to reach out to their local government, but if they will reach out to us, then we can better represent all sides of those, of those challenges. That is probably the finest way to kind of wrap up this conversation this afternoon. Thanks for all your work, and I encourage all businesses to really consider being members of the chamber. I mean, I think there's strength, strength in numbers, too. Go ahead, Lonnie. It's easy. I want to put one more plug in. Two. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and if you want to become a member, we now have a new website, moabchamber.com. It's super easy to join now, so... And the, and the website is very informative too, so I would recommend anybody that has any questions about the Moab Area Chamber of Commerce, just Google it and the, the, you know, it's a very good website, so I'll give you some more information. Thank you both for taking time to come up, well, I say come up to the studio, zoom up to the studio, but next time you do this, I hope to have you facing me across the table here up at the studio, so we look forward to those days ahead of us, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> All right. Thank you, you guys have a great night. Thank Thanks, you so much. Howard. All right. Take care. Um, that was the last of my Zoom guests this evening. Ah, Zoom, Zoom. Um, Lonnie Campbell, Lacey Shumway, representatives of the Moab Area Chamber of Commerce Board and Executive Director. Also, a big thanks to Wayne Freeman from USU. It's great to have professors in Moab, even. So, very excited about all, everything that's happening with USU. It's this hidden business thing that's happening. I always say about education, it is a resource that never runs out. People don't say, oh, that's it. Brain's full. We don't need any more. No, it's an endless resource. So as far as economic diversification goes, again, thank you so much for listening to KZMU this afternoon. We are your source for local engagement. And again, thanks to all the guests who took time to Zoom up here. And again, as I said to our guests, I cannot wait for this era of COVID to be in our rearview mirror and we can return to having live studio guests. Exciting times ahead, folks. Keep the dial tuned here to KZMU at 106.7, 90.1. And don't forget the website, kzmu.org.